The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On the morning of July 8th, 2015, a young man is found dead in the middle of a Hampton County, South Carolina country road. Though it's quickly determined he died by a hit and run, the injuries sustained do not match that, nor does his parents believe that story. What really happened? You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Stephen Smith. County now. Where's your emergency? Hello, oh, uh, I just going down the wrong um, Road. Mm-hmm. I see somebody laying out in the road. In the road? Yeah. Uh-uh. Somebody going to hit him. It's dark. Uh-huh. Somebody going to hit him. All right. We'll get an officer headed out that way. Okay. All right, sir. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of georgia and we're back all right ladies and gentlemen part two coming at you about the stephen smith murder case so less than 24 hours after we recorded episode one part one of this it's not episode one that'd be a long time ago we had some traction in the Alex Murdahl trial case. Uh, Coach, I believe you posted to our social medias. Yeah, it's, it's literally 8.09 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and at 7 p.m. they found him guilty. All I know for a fact is they deliberated for three hours. If they deliberate for three hours, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. The longer the, that means they all were in there were like, yeah, man. Let's first of all, let's get some free lunch. Yeah. Let's get some free dinner. Yeah. Once dinner's over, we're gonna just go ahead and say, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, three hours on a double murder, that's pretty, pretty quick. Because you gotta think they probably asked for some trial transcripts, they probably asked for some evidence or some reports. So that probably chewed up an hour. Like you said, they ate, got some snacks, went to the bathroom, and then probably sat down, and within 30 minutes they were all like, yep, check, he's guilty. Yeah. So, and here's the thing with this case. We don't want to reinvent the wheel because, like Coach had alluded to in the previous episode, our recommendations are going to be similar at the end of this second episode, and we'll get into that, but, there are some avenues that we could explore, some outliers that's kind of circle around Mr. Murdaugh and the remaining son. So we'll just play it by ear. I don't know if there's as much information out there about the housekeeper's death as there was about Stevens, um, but that is an, a possible upcoming episode that we could do that ties back into the Murdaugh trial. I just don't feel like 
I don't mean it. Come on. This is a mysterious bruise. There's no mystery there, man. She was pushed. Well, well, hell, there's no mystery here. He wasn't hit by a car. (laughs) Well, we don't have. Well, yeah, that's true. But we don't know. All I'm saying is this one's a little more mysterious than the maid. The maid, we at least know for sure if she was pushed, what last name the person that pushed her had. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. All right, so let's get after it. So where we left off in last week's episode, we'll give you a little rundown of what we covered, and this is very, very abbreviated. But there was evidence from the scene when Stephen was found just before 4 a.m. on July 8th in the middle of Sandy Run Road in Hampton County, South Carolina, There was no tire marks, no debris from a vehicle found at the scene after several, several searches. Stephen's loosely tied shoes were still on his feet when he was found dead in the middle of of Sandy Run Road. His keys and his iPhone were found in his pocket. The iPhone was not damaged. His car was found three miles away, and that's air miles. And I don't think we discussed it, but it was Bamberg Highway where they found his car. And we talked about in episode one, if he was going to get gas, he would have had to walk from where his car was at straight the way the map looks. It looks south. I have no idea what cardinal direction it is. But he would have had to walk from his car 12 miles to the nearest gas station. And at the time, it would have been closed. And I had read online that some of those gas stations, I guess the one he would have had to walk to, even though the store's closed, you could still access the pumps via uh, like a credit card or a check card. But he couldn't have done that because, to our knowledge, he didn't have a gas can, and they found his wallet wedged between the frame of the car and the passenger seat of his car. Now, the chain of custody with Stephen's clothes is where we're going to pick up and kind of delve into this. And chain of custody, I should have had the the old song chain 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 in there because there ain't much chain 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 hey we sing so good the dogs join in not approved shut the fuck up in there that's right so steven's head was bruised and misshapen by blunt force trauma he had a seven and a quarter inch i guess gash but the way it's it's not really a gash i mean the way it's described there is a hole in his head his shoulder was partially dislocated and then he had some what i would characterize as defensive wounds on his hands Um, immediately investigators who were on the scene realized real quick that This was not a hit-and-run accident, even though he's found in the road. They think he's been shot. There's the whole shit show with the Medical University of South Carolina pathologist, Dr. Erin Presnell. She just rules it a hit-and-run because, hey, he's found in the middle of the road, so he had to be hit by something. And then two separate South Carolina Highway Patrol investigators speak with Dr. Presnell and describe in separate reports that she was extremely hostile and would not directly answer their questions. Uh, The coroner at the scene did not believe that Stephen's death was a hit and run. 
and the case was given to the South Carolina Highway Patrol until 2021, and that's when SLED opened an investigation. And it is alluded to that SLED reopens it because after a search of the Murdaw family home, things were found that may or may not tie someone to that. So that's a the cliff notes from part one. So, like I said, this case ties directly back to the Alex Murdaugh murder trial. On July 17, 2015, around 11.05 a.m., Investigator Duncan, which he's a corporal with the South Carolina Highway Patrol, travels to Hampton County and interviews a member of Smith's family. And it's not Stephen's mother, but that's all that I could find is it's just a member of the family. And they interview this member of the family at the DMV office, which also acts as a substation for the South Carolina Highway Patrol. Now, the family member in question says that Stephen was recently acting secretive and started coming home late. Stephen's relative in question didn't believe the person who said they were dating Stephen and said the family was skeptical of him. Right after Stephen is found dead, I think within 24 hours, there are some rumors, some innuendos, and I think someone comes forward saying that they had been dating him. They kind of try to vet that and realize real quick that this person is just trying to interject themselves into the mystery, the investigation, and have no idea about anything. But Duncan asks the family member, and then he also follows up with Stephen's mom, Sandy, if they had been contacted by a lawyer. And the family member that had met with Duncan says that they had told police that Randy Murdaugh was the second person to call Stephen's father after the coroner called him on July the 8th to inform him, inform him of Stephen's death. Now, Randy, yeah, Randy is Alex's brother, works at the same law firm that was started by Alex and Randy's granddad, I believe, or great granddad. It was a great granddad. It was like freaking 19 something, 1914, 1918 when they founded the practice. It was a long time ago. Yeah, so to say they have generational wealth is an understatement. Now, Randy Murdahl tells Stephen's father, quote, he would take Stephen's case free of charge, end quote. And the family was extremely skeptical of Randy offering this and thought it was extremely odd. Now, the family member goes on to tell Investigator Duncan that prior to meeting with him, they had not left the family house other than to attend the wake for Stephen which was just the day before this meeting occurred. This family member decided to go to the grocery store and stated that while there, a bunch of people kept coming up to her saying, did you know the Murdaugh boys are behind it? Saying Buster Murdaugh, the one we went to school with, did it. And some of his friends, end quote. Now, this family, family, <laughs> shit. Family. One of them are families. Yeah, I got some good ones. I got some family reunions. The female family member stated that she didn't seem to believe it at the time. Quote, I'm just sitting here like, what? 
makes no sense. He's never said anything bad about Stephen. He's never been around Stephen, end quote. When asked who told her that she said Stephen's friend had approached her and another kid and a couple other people. So Corporal Duncan follows up on the new information, and around 1 p.m., he contacts Stephen's mom, Sandy. Sandy says she's also skeptical of the man claiming to be Stephen's boyfriend. She tells Duncan that Stephen was going to school in Orangeburg and hung out at Bobcat Landing a lot recently. She said Stephen had been recently cutting school, which was very unusual for him. She goes on to explain that it was unlike Stephen because he was smart and, quote, a study person who was typically very serious about his school. Sandy does tell Corporal Duncan that a man at Bilo was, quote, giving Stephen trouble, but they became friends. And for those of you not in the South, Bilo is a grocery store chain. It was. It ain't no more. That's right, because they got bought out by the food line. Food? No. Yes, sir, they did. Well, food line's been, no. No, they got bought out by Food City. Well, food line, Come on, bro. Now, nah, bro, let me tell you something. Food Line bought one of their distributing, main distributing things up in Tennessee, I think. Look, we'll just save that for grocery brews. Okay, okay. And discuss it on our grocery store podcast. <laughs> Where we talk about couponing and triple dipple and <laughs> super couponing. <laughs> I'm not giving, they're giving me money to bit f- f- fucking shop there, bitch. I'm not giving them none. <laughs> so anyway Sandy does confirm that she had heard rumors about the Murdoch boys had something to do with Stephen's death quote the rumor that's going around Hampton that everybody did we we specify that it is Buster that's what what I was about to get to boy oh I'm sorry damn man I jumped the gun jump the shark there you go jumping the shark But yes, the rumor going around Hampton that everybody keeps coming up to Sandy with was that it was the Murdaugh boys, more specifically the oldest Murdaugh boy, Buster. Duncan responds, the Murdaugh boys, and she says, yeah, whoever they are. She knew. She knew who the Murdaugh boy was, were. But anyway, so she's trying, I understand what that is saying there. She's trying not to sway his opinion and I think that is commendable to her because I would be in a lather and maybe do something stupid if I heard it more than once that someone absolutely had killed my child so she's doing I will say this she's a saint that lady is a saint beyond she's almost grandmother sainthood I'll say that but anyway, yeah, like she she had to carry on the fight pretty much by herself because uh, Stephen's dad didn't make it. But what three months? Yeah, he passed away in October of 2015, and like, they said he had a massive heart attack, died in his sleep. Uh, he 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 died of a broken heart, yeah, man. Yeah. Like they said he withdrew, that's and what that was yeah, and it's it's just. It's hard enough to lose a child, and then you have to turn around and bury your spouse and for Stephen's sister. Well, they were divorced, but still. Yeah. 
Stephen's sister has to bury her brother, her twin brother, and then turn around and she loses her dad three months later. So yeah, it's it's just not that's a good a hard, situation. That's hard life right there, man. That's yeah, it is. Now police rough. are chasing down leads that do not directly tie to the Murdoch's. And on July twenty first of twenty fifteen, Corporal Duncan speaks with fellow Corporal David Rowell about the man Sandy mentioned at the Bilo. Rowell noted that the man at the Bilo said, quote, him and Stephen had a relationship for a while, but he has not seen Stephen in a while. Duncan does report, or I'm sorry, Duncan does put in a report, quote, there is no evidence from the store. There is no video evidence from the store. So one can assume, and I know that is dangerous when we assume, that Duncan had actually looked through the surveillance videos at the Bilo to see if he could corroborate this rumor that this man and Stephen had a relationship. Now, like we said previously, Buster Murdaugh is the one that is rumored to have been linked to Stephen. And linked is not in the friendship category. The rumor mill is that he was linked to Stephen intimately. Yes. They were having sexual relations allegedly. Allegedly. Now, detectives could never prove the connection, and it's unclear if the mate investigation team ever examined Stephen's phone, and that's a whole nother shit show that we're about to get into with that phone. Now, the phone would be unlocked by the FBI several years later after Stephen's death, and there's been a lot made about that phone, and at one point, Duncan contacts Sandy and ask her if she can unlock Stephen's phone. And she says, yes, I'm the secondary fingerprint holder on the phone. I can meet you in Orangeburg. They schedule a meeting, and according to Corporal Duncan, he meets with Sandy to get the phone unlocked, but states in his report, quote, unable to unlock the phone, end quote. Hmm. And then there's a whole thing about... They're trying to send it to Apple, and Apple has to then contact Sandy to make sure it's okay. And if none of y'all remember that, there was a whole shit show about how Apple keeps their phones locked, and it takes a court order to get them unlocked. And then after the court order, the family member holding the account has to sign off on them to unlock it, which I think is great on Apple's part for trying to protect your data. However... That's where the chain of custody with the phone kind of falls apart because there's nothing else mentioned other than it was eventually turned over to the FBI, but no one that I could find has stated what was found on the phone, if anything was found on the phone. So the whole phone situation is very, very weird. Very, very weird. It is. Now, between July the 29th, 2015, and August the 3rd of 2015, there is basically some trace evidence that was found and sent to forensic scientist Michael Moskal. And he works for SLED. According to what we currently know about the chain of custody and the release of the evidence, which is a shit show, that <laughs> it really is because... I know it is. It's just <laughs> After the autopsy, you know, there's that release of evidence that we that I read last week. And then it's either Duncan or Proctor or Roll, one of those three investigators contacts the funeral home and they realize real quick that all of the the evidence of clothing is in a grocery bag with the body at the funeral home. So 
yeah, the chain of custody is broken big time. So anyway, somehow Mr. Moskal gets some items of Stevens and those items were the black Nike short sleeve t-shirt he had on, uh, the khaki cargo shorts. He had some cuttings taken from something. It just says item three. I don't know what item three is. Then he had uh, one pair of blue Airspeed footwear shoes, uh, debris collected from items two through four, and that debris supposedly is, quote, several single-layer metallic blue paint chips, and due to the condition of the sample, no make, model, and year information was able to be attained. These paint chips are suitable for comparison should a standard become available. Moskal then states in his report that he found around 10 one-millimeter single-layer blue paint chips and advised that he needed more paint layer evidence to pinpoint a particular vehicle. Now, to keep this in perspective, a one-millimeter paint chip is about the head of a pencil. So we're talking microscopic evidence here. He goes on to explain that SLED has this database called PDQ. I have no idea what it stands for, but it tells him that the paint could have come from either an industrial tool, a dumpster, a signpost, or he states that Toyota used the same paint on its vehicles from 1982 to 1988. So... Going back to the chain of custody, we don't know if these paint chips were there at the autopsy or if they transferred from something else on to whatever they found when they were picked back up at the funeral home. No one knows. It would be great, and it would have been wonderful to find out if it did come from a vehicle, but since the chain of custody is broken that would have been thrown out in court because no one kept the shit locked down. It's ridiculous. Now, absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. It is, man. It's just a convoluted circus is what it is. But like I said, man, I, my hat's off to Proctor and Duncan and a lot of those guys from the South Carolina Highway Patrol and the mate team. They're trying to do right. They're just getting stonewalled from a lot of different angles. Now, Duncan starts reaching out to Stephen's friends to see if they were aware of anything that may help in the case. He reaches out to one friend who stated that she had spoken to Stephen on the night of his death around 7 or 8 p.m. They had chit-chatted about school. He didn't say where he was or what he was doing, and she said that he wasn't being evasive, but it was just one of those facts that it didn't come up in the conversation. She had also heard it was a hit-and-run, and... she had not heard anything other than that. Now, Detective Proctor interviewed several sources who knew the Murdoch brothers and made quite the assessment of the family. Quote, I think it's a situation when you grow up and your family is kind of high profile and you get away with some things because your family name. You become invincible in a way and you get a little liquor and you think you're untouchable. End quote. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that feeling. <laughs> Ten foot tall and bulletproof. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
Now, keep in mind, this statement that Proctor made was in 2015, many years before Paul was charged with three felonies in the boat crash that killed Mallory Beach. Proctor would state in the investigation that, quote, the Murdahls, as big and powerful and rich as everyone thinks they are, they're going to go on living their lives like nothing happened. So they can play that card like they care about everyone else. No, they don't. They care about protecting themselves, end quote. Proctor made it clear in his reports that he didn't believe Stephen's death was a hit and run. We kind of discussed that last week. Quote, we're not classifying this as anything other than a murder. You go back to the Murdoch name and their ties in that community, and that don't matter to me. What we've done is take that investigation out of that and their reach. I don't care what your name is, how much money you got. I'm not saying that the Murdoch boy did it. But if we're going to be throwing out names, I'm not going to be withholding names. His name is going to be right there with everyone else's name, and I don't care who knows it, end quote. And that's why I keep trying to give them props, because that's what you want out of an investigator. Absolutely. You do not want them to waver. You want them, as the old saying is, you want them to examine the evidence and let the evidence lead you to a conclusion. But, I mean, they keep, like you said, they keep getting stonewalled. They keep having stuff working against them. I mean, you and I both, being from rural Georgia, we know what a good old boy system looks like. And But this one is insane. Just like, the tentacle, how far the tentacles reach in different areas is what was surprising to me. Yeah, definitely. But, I mean, then again, they've been the district attorney or the solicitor in that town for what? hundred years. Almost. Yeah. It's a hundred <laughs> years. Like that's like this Ralph Baker territory. Yeah, you're right. On August 7th of 2015, Corporal Duncan with other state highway patrol officers call Stevens friends. And eventually they come across this name that is only referred to as Brittany. And Duncan explains that one of Stephen's relatives called and told him that Brittany was at church and had informed, had information about Stephen's death. Duncan asked her to email him any information. So Brittany tells Duncan that, quote, another friend of mine had texted me and asked me, were Buster and Stephen together? She told the friend, no, not that I knew of. Why? The friend responded that he had heard it. She then asked the friend who had said it, and he said he didn't know, just that he had heard it. So Duncan responds, quote, okay, so he didn't have anything to base that upon except for more or less rumor. Is that correct? Brittany says yes. Duncan then asked Brittany whether she had ever heard of Stephen and Buster being together before this. She said she had not. Duncan asked to make sure that this was the first she had heard the rumor, and Brittany says, yes, this is the first time I've heard of Buster and Stephen being together. Duncan then asked Brittany whether she knew Stephen was gay. She says, yes, I did, kind of like we talked about last week. Everybody knew it. He didn't hide it. Duncan then asked whether she had heard any rumors about Stephen's death that she, quote, just knew wasn't true other than what we had already talked about. She says, no, that's the only thing that I've heard. 
He goes on and asks if anything curious happened at the funeral or afterwards that kind of stuck out as unusual to her, and she said no, not that she can think of. She says a boy named, and the name's redacted, but they refer to him as Jack, told her about the rumor, and then Duncan notes in his report, quote, contacted Brittany in reference to Stephen Smith's death, states a boy named Jack asks if Stephen and Buster had ever had any type of relationship, end quote. So after that conversation, Duncan finds Jack and leaves a message. Three days pass, and Jack's father calls Duncan back, asking, what is going on? Why are you trying to contact my son? Duncan kind of, you know, puts the smoke out of the fire a little bit and just says, look, I'm I'm investigating Stephen Smith's death, and your son's name came up. And the dad says, okay, I'll have Jack contact you. A day later, Jack does call Duncan back. So Duncan, go ahead, go ahead. Duncan goes ahead and tells Jack from the get-go, look, I know you sent a text to Brittany about this rumor and that you know Stephen. So let's get that out of the way. He then asks Jack if Buster Murdoch had any relationship with Stephen. And Jack said, I've heard that rumor. So Duncan says, do you know any info if that's true or not? And Jack says, I have no information confirming nor denying it. He then asks, <laughs> it's kind of like the CIA. I can neither confirm nor deny that he was employed here. <laughs> so when asked if, if Jack knows anything about Stephen's death, Jack says, no, sir, not at all. Jack said that's the only rumor he has heard in relation to Stephen's death. You know, a lot of people hear a lot of rumors, but it seems like nobody knows anything. That's right. It's a bad case to telephone. And it's probably how they wanted it, though, you know. Exactly. Certainly Buster, if it was true, I mean, he definitely didn't want anybody knowing that he was he, he was gay. No, and in one of the documentaries, they kind of allude to the fact that if, if that had came to fruition that Alex and the whole Murdoch family would have basically shunned him. And right or wrong, whether this is true or not, that's a lot of pressure on a young man. So I'm not saying one way or the other that I agree with what Buster's done or any of that stuff. We're not even saying that we believe that him and Buster had a relationship. But we're just trying to give you the facts. Now, just the facts, ma'am. Just, just the, facts, the facts, ma'am. Let's get right out of the way. So, Proctor would interview a man he referred to as Jack as well. And guess what? It's the same Jack. And after Duncan interviewed him, between the time Duncan interviewed Jack and the time Proctor interviews Jack, poor old Jack's facing two separate lawsuits from the Murdoch Law Firm. So, he is the only person in this case that has ever been interviewed twice. And the following is a, I don't know, transcript, I guess, of some sort between Proctor and Jack from the second interview that took place on September the 2nd, 2015. Proctor asked, I met with Kevin this morning. I'm sure you're aware. He kind of told me his side of it, and I got to keep Working this rumor backwards, if it's rumors or truth, whatever it may be, tell me the version of the story you heard. Jack says, 
I was with friends one night and out of the blue with my friend Monica said that we already knew he got in, he got hit or whatever, but we didn't know who did it. We just heard Buster did it. Everybody knows who Buster is and his family and all that. And it was kind of shocking and all that. And I guess we kept talking about it and spreading it around. Jack said Monica told him this and that she was his classmate. And she was like, you won't believe who did it and said his name. And I was like, really? She said she heard it from Kayla, whose father works in law enforcement. Proctor says, the story I got is that Buster and one or two other people were driving around and saw Steven's car, looped around, saw him in the road, struck him with something hanging out of the vehicle. Is that the story you heard? Jack says, yes. Proctor then says, like I told Kevin this morning, Buster was on our radar long before we ever got this information. I'm calling you about it now. It's not like somebody is going to say Kevin or Jack are the ones that put us on Buster. My office is out of Charleston. I don't work around Hampton. I know who the Murdals are, and I know the Murdals are highfalutin, and some people say have a lot of power. That name doesn't mean anything to me. My job is to find out. You don't have to agree with Steven's lifestyle, but that don't mean he gets to be killed, and nobody gets to find out that happened. Sidebars, I, I just love the term highfalutin. I don't know why. I do too. I always have. I've always wanted to be highfalutin. I would love to be highfalutin. <laughs> but I will tell you this, highfalutin is not a word that Microsoft Word recognizes. It is, it's got the old red squiggly line in my notes. It's it's in the dictionary. Well, you may have spelled it wrong. Well, I may I have. I just looked it up. How you got it spelled? F-A and then looting. It's F. It's F-A-L-U-T-I-N, highfalutin. Oh, I got it. I means got, hold on, hold on. Let pompous, me pompous or pretentious. I believe they are both. <laughs> it is high hyphen falutin. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So Jack then says he was a cool person. Honestly, we were in class together. It was shocking. Proctor says he didn't get hit by no car. I'm not saying someone murdered him, but if he was somebody playing around and it got out of control, the problem is when you lie and cover it up, you know Stephen's story deserves to be told. If you want to call Monica and give her a heads up, you can. After the interview with Jack, Detective Proctor calls Kayla around 1.15 p.m. and asks her what she had heard about Stephen's death. She said she heard, quote, one of my classmates did it. Proctor asked her, who is that? She says, Buster Murdoch. Proctor says, I'll be honest with you, Buster's been on our radar long before this. He then asked if she heard the rumor about... No. He asked her where she heard it, and she says, my father, who's in law enforcement, and that, no, that is the rumor going around, but that is not where she heard it. So now you got... Kayla saying, yeah, I heard the rumor, but it didn't come from me, and my father's not told me shit about nothing. So Proctor then... I don't know nothing. Yeah. Proctor then says, I've talked with quite a few people down there, and you have less to worry about since your daddy is a law enforcement officer. A lot of people seem nervous to say the name Murdoch. 
I understand they're pretty big down in Hampton, but I'm in Charleston, and that main name doesn't mean anything to me. So I want you to understand that. So Kayla says, and this is where the telephone game kicks in. We're about to be four cans deep. <laughs> Kayla says that she heard the rumor from another guy who is referred to by the name of Isaac. She says that she doesn't know how Isaac knew about it, but he said that they, referring to Murdaugh and some friends, beat Stephen up and threw him out of a truck. Proctor asked Kayla if she knew of any enemies that Stephen may have had, to which she responds, not that I know of. Here's the thing, though, is he wasn't beat up. He may have been thrown from the truck, and that's what called the little, the, the little bit of road rash on him, but he was struck one good time, if you ask me. Like, somebody hit him with something with the intent to kill him. Yes, I agree with you. He was to say he was beat up as I would say is wrong because he wasn't beat up. He was straight up murdered, but he would have m more evidence if he was beaten to death rather than struck once. Correct. Proctor goes on with the interview with Kayla and I says say he wasn't beaten to death because clearly he was, but just one wasn't a beating. It, it was, was a single blow. Strike. Yeah, strike. Yeah, single strike to the head. <laughs> so you said blow. <laughs> 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 so proctor says to kayla everybody knew steven's lifestyle but nobody really had an issue with it it doesn't even sound like buster had an issue with him it doesn't make any sense he goes on to say and it's south it's south carolina somebody's got an issue with it <laughs> they might not say it out loud to him but come on man deep down in parties <laughs> Yeah. yeah, in places you don't like to talk about. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. You march around here and you use these words like duty and honor. <laughs> you said duty. <laughs> oh, man. Proctor goes on to say, regardless if you like Stephen or agreed with his lifestyle, somebody killed him. His story deserves to be told. That's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. He then asked Kayla about Buster's friend Cameron. Kayla says she's hung out with Cameron from time to time. My understanding is that Buster is really good friends with that guy named Cameron, according this is Proctor. Any knowledge of why his name keeps coming up? Kayla says, no, sir, I have no idea. He then asked Kayla to tell him where he can find this Isaac guy. She said that he worked at a, and it later comes out, it was redacted in this first one, but it later comes out that he worked at a Hardee's fast food restaurant in Hampton County. Proctor tells her, look, you're the ninth person I've talked to about this, so hopefully people start talking. Kayla then give, gave him Mia's number. He tells her that he was down in Hampton yesterday. Quote, I tried to stir up some dust yesterday and get some people talking. Hopefully some people are starting to talk, end quote. So Proctor's like pounding the old phone pavement on this one. He turns around and calls a approximately at 4.15 p.m. and tries to get in touch with this Mia person. And it says the information that was first given to me was that Buster Murdaugh and one or two other people out that night and saw Steven's car. They went down the road and they saw him walking and held something or swung something out of a car and accidentally hit him. 
Does any of that sound familiar? Accidentally. Yeah, you're not just going to accidentally stick something out, hit somebody in the damn head. I will say this, sidebar, uh, when I was a kid, and I don't know why it didn't dawn on me, when I was a kid, and I mean less than driving. Probably because it was so long ago. Drivable age. Yeah, that's true. Uh, this is when I was probably, shit, I don't know, 13, 14. There was a guy that didn't ride my bus, but he rode the bus that uh, – that went one road over that I had a friend riding. And he said, and we even asked the guy the next day, that the kid was out walking. He was walking down the highway, and he was way off the road, and he had his head down. He said the next thing he knows, somebody had thrown a Coke bottle out, and it hit him square in the chest, and he said, I thought I was going to die. Oh, wow. Yeah, he said it cracked a rib, bruised his sternum. So there's some stupid fuckers out there. In the South, and I'm sure there's. Oh, it, I'm sure it's all over the country. It ain't, it ain't just it ain't just localized here, buddy. I mean, we do have a <laughs> great, a large amount of them, but it it's not just us, bro. No, you're right. You're right. It's not just us. All right. So Mia, he does get in touch with Mia. Mia said that she had heard something about Buster, but quote, I don't remember. Oh, imagine that. Proctor then reiterates, just like he's told everybody else, I'm out of Charleston, I'm not from Hampton, but I know the Murdoch name is pretty big down there. But as far as I'm concerned, I couldn't give two craps about the Murdoch's. But what I'm seeing is a lot of people seem hesitant to talk to the Murdoch's or Buster. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? She says, when we were speaking about it, someone told me it was Buster. They were saying nothing would be done about it because of who he is. Proctor says, but that's the problem. I don't care about Buster. I'm not a local police officer in Hampton. I don't care about the last name Murdoch. I'm not saying I'm going to put it on Buster, but if he did something or had something to do with it, it needs to come out. The thing about it is we all know Stephen lived a different lifestyle, but it seems to me like no one really took issue to that. He seemed like the kind of guy everybody got along with. It seemed like no one really had any issues with him. Mia agrees with him. Proctor goes on to state, someone had a part to play in his death. He wasn't hit by a car. Something else happened. The unfortunate part is, well, my job is to tell Stephen's story because he can't tell his own story. Proctor says, the Murdoch's as big and powerful and whatever and rich as everyone thinks they are, they're going to go on living their lives like nothing happened. So they can play that card if they want to. Then he says, if Buster has something to do with it, I'd like to be able to prove that. But the information that I'm getting is just rumors. Started out strong because I had an individual who really stepped out against the Murdoch's and was willing to talk. And it seems as I keep continuing on and talking to other people, it's getting watered down a great bit. Hey guys, Arlo here, and if you are struggling with the old caffeine in the morning, I have got the fix for you. It is called Magic Mind, and it is just a little two-ounce shot that you drink with your coffee or your energy drinks in the morning. It is chocked full of greatness, and it will get you focused, and it really actually has the L-theanine. And that lowers your cortisol hormone, which helps absorb that caffeine that you're intaking. 
Now, Magic Mind has nootropics, adaptogens, matcha green tea, and 12 magical ingredients. That matcha boosts your energy. The adaptogens help with relaxation, and the nootropics keep you focused. A bonus is that it has vitamins C and D along with the echinacea to help your immunity. So head over to magicmind.co backslash brews and enter the promo code BREWS20. That is brews20, BREWS20. And that will give you a 20% off coupon for either a one time purchase or subscription to a monthly dose of Magic Mind. Proctor then asked Mia if she knows how to get in touch with this Isaac fella. And he says, I'd you like. You already to- said this, bro. I know. You re- you're repeating yourself. He said, I'd like to get in touch with Isaac. Just know- keep going. You're done committed. I'm committed. He <laughs> says, I'd like to still get in touch with Isaac so that we could figure this out. If you tell us he worked at a damn Hardee's. I'm not. You're about to. I'm about, about to say anything. No, I'm about to say. <laughs> basically, it sounds like he's got a script because he talks to Mia like that. And then mm-hmm. inst- when he finished talking to Kayla, he says, you're the ninth person I've talked to. Well, when he finishes talking to Mia, he says, you're the tenth person I've talked to about this. I'm trying to track some stuff down. It had to start somewhere. If you say you heard it from Isaac, eventually I'm going to get to the source. I was in Hampton yesterday, and I stirred up some dust. So basically, he's just repeating himself. Now, here's the problem with all of this. I think Proctor's on the right thing or the right course of action. He's headed down the right path. But in the investigation file, there are no other entries after this phone call with Mia. There is no record of Proctor ever calling Isaac or finding out where Isaac was. Now, we're going to take a small detour here and go back about a month. And as Proctor's investigating his angle, Corporal Duncan is still investigating his. And around August the 17th, Duncan calls a man named Mike, who was allegedly Stephen's boyfriend. It goes to voicemail. And then this game of phone tag between Duncan and this Mike character begins. And it is unclear if Mike was ever contacted and if he had anything relevant to say and i think that's who sandy was referring to as the boyfriend that no one believed i'm not 100 percent sure but that's just my gut telling me so on august the 27th of 2015 corporal duncan interviews a man named ben sandy had given duncan ben's information and said he had some information relevant to the case this is the guy that works at the Hardys in Hampton, and he had gone to school with Stephen, but never hung out with him outside of school. He said a white man in his 30s and 40s came looking for him, and Ben called the police and told them about it. And then his co-worker said he was looking for him again. He said he knew Ben from hanging out with Stephen and him before. When asked if he's heard any rumors about Stephen's death, He said he heard that, quote, he was running in the woods from somebody. He then said he thought he was running from an older guy. Quote, maybe it was some guy he was messing with and nobody knew, and Stephen was going to bring him out. Now, 
the next day, Lance Corporal Conley interviews a man who they refer to as Joe. And Joe is actually on Hilton Head Island because Sandy had found a day pass for a Hilton Head gated community with Joe's name on it. And Joe just happens to be an older white male that was recently divorced. He had met Stephen online but said, quote, no money exchanged. Why would you even drop that nugget? If you're saying no money exchanged, I'm pretty sure money was exchanged. Yeah. You go out of your way to say that. Oh, but there was no money, though. I mean, hey, yeah, I knew him. I met him online, but we didn't. Well, I didn't give him any money. Dude, there wasn't nobody fucking talking about money. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't pay, I didn't pay him for sex. I mean, that's what you're saying. This is not true. He's, a, he's over mean, taking a long drag off a filterless camel. Man, I didn't give him any money. I promise you. I mean, don't go saying that I did. I will, I will deny that. You will never know. I mean. Oh, shit. All right. So, again, sidebar, because this is how fucked up my mind works. So, I saw the outtake or the clip, not outtake. It was a clip from, uh, what's that? What's that damn HBO series with Woody Harrelson and All Right, All Right, oh, All Right. Uh, uh, true, true. Um, I thought it was true crime cool. too, but it's not. Whatever it is, they get that they get that lady that had basically killed three of her kids in there. And at the end, when he gets her confession, he looks at her and he goes, "Look, jail's going to be hard on you." And he takes that long drag and he goes, "If you get the chance, kill yourself." And he gets up and walks. You know out. what's funny is is when you said that about the long drag, I thought about that same show, but when he's going, he's smoking that cigarette, he's like. Well, today's Thursday, my day off. I start drinking at noon on my day off. You don't get to interrupt that. That's true detective. That's right, true detective. It just dawned on me, too. Good job, man. Good job. That's why you're here, buddy. That's why you're here. That's what Google's for. But, yeah, (laughs) I swear I thought that same thing. I was like, I I just got a picture in my head. I, I start drinking at noon on my days off. You don't get to interrupt that. I will. I haven't seen. I haven't seen the other seasons. I heard they were terrible, but the first uh, season of True Detective is amazing. And if you like to see breastuses, if that is something you're into, <laughs> <laughs> there's a girl on there with just one hell of a pair. Let's just say that. I'm just saying, um, it's worth a Google. <laughs> That picture of him standing over the case files, dragging, taking a big drag off that cigarette. That's the way I felt about. You told me this about this case last Wednesday, so about Sunday, I'm in my office trying to start my notes. And I'm like, I've gone down the rabbit hole. I need some more red string. But anyway, no. Uh, I will say this. Um, I watched all the seasons. They're not bad. They're all standalone, but they go back to Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey in season three or season four, and it's real good. They kind of pick up. It's good, so you need to watch that one. You might need to watch the first one again and then go watch the the one that I'm talking about. Nah, I'm not going to do that. Okay, you'll just watch Justified (laughs) for the 18th time. It's a quality show, man. It is. It is a quality show. (laughs) <laughs> all right so back at it so after joe drops the 
bombshell, no money was exchanged. He then says, this kind of thing, does it happen often? And again, like, I'm just like, dude, why are you even talking? But anyway, he then just verbally vomits out that him and Steven hooked up on June 28th, but it was a one night stand. He says that he texted Steven a few times after that and didn't realize that he had passed away until somebody called him and that somebody just happened to be his mother, Sandy. Oh, that's terrible. God, that's awful. So September the 1st, 2015, Proctor interviews a man and they call him Kevin. And Proctor mentions the he said, she said shit going around. You know, Proctor's at this time just done with the whole thing. Look, I had a script. Fuck it. I ain't doing it no more. There's a bunch of rumors going on. Do you know anything else? (laughs) But Kevin tells. Now, Kevin, I'm going to preface this. Kevin has a wealth of knowledge. So Proctor hits the gold mine on this one. He mentions that he had heard the rumor mills and that Kevin's name is brought up. And so Kevin says that he had heard just the weekend before Proctor contacts him, quote, certain young men were riding down 601, saw Stephen broke down on the road, passed him, turned around, and then stuck something out the window that ended up hitting Stephen. Kevin then tells Proctor, quote, I want to help you in any way possible, end quote. He goes on to say that he heard three names. I don't want to say it over the phone, he said. He asks if he can meet Proctor so that he can tell him these face-to-face. And he again reiterates the fact that he is willing to help with anything. Kevin says that he's sort of, quote, torn because he hates going by the he said, she said situation, but that when he thinks about the situation, it, quote, would make sense. He says it would be worth looking into. Proctor says he understands Kevin's reservations about saying the name. He tells him his office is out of Charleston and, quote, there's no big name in Hampton that worries me, and I want you to feel at ease about this as well. He says that, quote, People associated with this name have been around kind of not, well, kind of threatening, putting the heat on people to keep their mouths shut. Kevin says he knew this person and went to school with him and says, quote, it kind of all makes sense and that he hates being the kind of person to throw accusations out there. Kevin then tells Proctor he understands what he's saying about being from Charleston, but he'd feel more comfortable talking to Proctor in person. So they make arrangements to meet the next morning. So at 9.21 a.m. on September the 2nd, 2015, Proctor meets up with Kevin. Kevin says he first heard Stephen was shot, but then he heard it was a hit and run. He said recently, in the past week, week and a half, he had heard that two or three people were riding around 601 and saw Stephen on the side of the road and were messing around with him, stuck something out the window. He says he heard it was Buster Murdahl, kind of out of character to know who I know. He says the person who told him this, though, said that Buster was on drugs. Kevin says, I hate to only be able to give you hearsay. I hate it because the main thing is whether that is the case or not the case, there is still somebody who lost a child, lost a brother, lost a family member, and that's not right. 
Well, here's the thing. I mean, this this man's name has come up over and over and over and over again. Let's. Why don't we sit down and talk to him? When we get what he what his side of the story is. That's what I don't understand. Where was he that day? And they don't talk to him. He's not been brought in for questioning. And the thing is, not one time they could surreptitiously, um kind of figure out where the fuck he was at from his cell phone records. They could subpoena his cell phone records knowing that he has ties to a legal firm and that they've got to be real careful. You know, I, I agree with you, man. They could have done some things to either put this rumor to bed or we're going to chase this rabbit till it falls. Anyway, so Proctor here's, asked, you know, here's how you're going to know when they sentence this son of a bitch, uh, to 30 years in prison for killing his wife and his youngest son. Wait and see if he don't, if, if Buster did it, I wouldn't be surprised if Alex confesses to it. That's what I was thinking the entire time. You'll never know the truth. Because they are, they've reopened the case. Yes. Yeah, the Stephen opened Smith it. case has been reopened. So what I'm saying is if he really cares enough about his son, Buster, he'll confess to it to get Buster off the hook. That's what I'm saying. Well, Buster's the last male relative now. That's what I'm saying. He's he's trying. He's I don't know. He's the only one left to try to redeem this family's name, other than the brothers and shit. But I mean, the Alex's brothers, not right. Buster's brothers. Yeah. So Proctor asked Kevin who he heard this from, and he says Jack, but he uses Jack's real name. Kevin says that Jack told him that Buster and a man who they refer to as Trevor tried to sell him cocaine at a party at Moselle. And I think Moselle is one of those fancy fancy places in Charleston, baby. (laughs) Kevin says that Trevor just moved to Oklahoma, which he says is weird. There's another thing that I don't understand. You drop a name and then, oh, by the way, the guy that I just told you about that was trying to sell me cocaine at this party... He just fucking up and moved to Oklahoma. Now, why would he do something crazy like that? Maybe the coca, the coca coma, the cocaine in Oklahoma is is higher grade. I don't know. All I know is that the boys in Oklahoma roll the joints all wrong. <laughs> you ever heard that song? Yes, I have. Oh, it's a good one. Oh, it is. All they're right. too damn skinny and they're way too long. <laughs> Now, Kevin says that Trevor, after he moved to Oak, when he found out he moved to Oklahoma, he says, that's just weird to me. All this, it could be a very strange coincidence, but it's just really weird to me. He said that Trevor was bad on drugs according to what he knew and what other people were saying. Proctor asked Kevin whether he thinks Trevor was in the car. Kevin says it fits the mold. There's some part inside me that says there's a possibility. Proctor asked Trevor or asked about Trevor moving. Kevin said he found this out through Facebook. Kevin gives Proctor the rundown of where he got the rumor from and says that he doesn't understand why law enforcement hasn't gone straight to Buster and this Trevor guy. So Proctor says he heard that Buster and the guys were coming back from a baseball game. Kevin says Buster and whoever was with him were coming from the Murdoch's house in Moselle on 601. I think that's their little hunting thing out there. 
it's in the picture. I think that's where it's got the picture of that cattle gate on that brick entrance, and it's just a grass driveway, two-track driveway. It goes to that big old fucking white house. That's not their main house either. But anyway, Proctor asked whether Kevin knows if Buster was driving. Kevin says, I would imagine so, adding that Kevin usually was the one to drive when his friends were driving around. Kevin says Buster used to drive a Suburban, but would sometimes drive a black F-150 or an F-250. Kevin says he has no idea who else was in the car. So Kevin expounds on this Murdoch connection and says the only name given to him was Buster. And he said everyone is, quote, shy to say anything because, quote, I don't want to say power, but the name brings certain standards with it, end quote. Kevin says, I think that's why people are hush-hush around here. And the, the other rumor that was going around was that the Murdoch law firm had been giving out certain free vacations to people, asking them to take a long vacation somewhere while the investigation was going on. It's just rife with corruption, man. But anyway. Uh, you, you think? So Proctor says he's heard that, that they've gone to certain people and told them to keep their mouths closed. Kevin says three people were at a party talking about Stephen's death, and another guy said, quote, I feel nothing with will come of it. And that's how the murder name got brought up. I feel like they wouldn't want anything to happen to their reputation, said Kevin. Well, hell, I'm, we, I can't. I can't. I can't. We'll be here for another two hours. Anyway. Kevin has even yeah, gone. I got to, shit to do, man. I know on this do. random Thursday. <laughs> Kevin has even yes, yeah, raining like a motherfucker too. Yeah, it is. Kevin has even gone to South Carolina football games with the Murdoffs. I hope he went when Tennessee or Georgia beat that ass. That's how I feel about that. Quote: I hate to throw names out there, but then again, what's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. Proctor says, I think it's a situation when you grow up and your family is kind of high profile and you get away with some things because of your family name and you're given, 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 and given things. You become invincible in a way and you get a little liquor in you and then you think you're untouchable. I think that's what's happened. They freaked out and maybe it's just trying to get covered up at this point. Kevin says the Smiths, Stephen's family, deserve the truth. I'd want to know the truth. Proctor then reiterates his song and dance about how Buster's been on the radar for a long time. He knows who the Murdoch's are. Proctor then tells Kevin a separate chain of people who told the South Carolina Highway Patrol about the Murdoch's involvement. Kevin tells Proctor about how the Murdoch's have big parties at their houses every weekend or every other weekend, including kids from Varnville and Bambug quote, anywhere you could think of. That is where the party spot was in Hampton, Kevin says, of Moselle. So that's their little party pad. Kevin says he's gone to one party there. He says it's known for, quote, a lot of fights, a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, and everything's just going down at the same time. Now we get to... What they are referring to as Paul. I have no idea who Paul is. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Wrong Paul. Paul's the little brother. 
Now, Kevin says when he originally heard Stephen's death, he had thought that Paul, the younger Murdoch boy, was the one everyone was talking about. I don't want to say troublemaker. He's more the, my last name is Murdoch, and I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. Proctor asked about Paul. Is he 15 or 16? Kevin says Paul is either a junior, possibly a senior in high school. Paul used to be called Little Paul. Kevin says he was hesitant to give the names out. I'm not scared of those people, but I definitely don't want them knowing that I had anything to do with this. I just don't want to get into all of that because Hampton is the smallest town. And then we dance, we have this dance about how Hampton is a small town, and then Proctor tries to reassure them that he don't give a shit because he's not in Hampton, but they're living in Hampton, and they're still scared, and it's just a bunch of back and forth. Now, Proctor does eventually get around to asking Kevin whether or not he thought it was an accident or outright murder. Proctor says that the way he understand it, understands it is that they didn't go out there intentionally looking to kill Stephen, and Kevin agrees with him. He says he doesn't believe Stephen was killed on premeditated situation and that they thought they were going to really mess him up by hitting with some hitting him with something, but they wound up killing him. And Proctor says, and that's the thing that night, if they were playing around, once you start hiding it and lying it, it makes it worse. How do you expect me to take mercy on you when you left this family for months, not knowing what happened to their loved one? He goes on to say, quote, typically you don't see the highway patrol work in a murder, and that's what this is. We're not classifying this as anything other than a murder. There's a reason why Hampton County Sheriff's Office is not handling this, and I'll leave it to that, end quote. So Proctor goes back to Kevin, the, the well with Kevin, and says, uh, again, about the rumor mill. They talk about how they found out about the Murdoch kid, the Murdoch boy. And Kevin says he hopes the Murdaws didn't do it, but when you start throwing puzzle pieces in there, it makes more sense. Proctor says there had to be more than one person involved. He says if best if Buster was driving, then someone else was responsible for hitting Stephen. It's not all on Buster. There's more people involved here. So on November the 18th of 2015, Stephen's mom, Sandy, calls Duncan and states that she had heard on the radio. Now, this is a fucked up situation. And this just goes to show you about the tentacles of this family. So Stephen calls investigator Duncan, says that she heard on, she had heard on the radio that an arrest had been made or will be made in Stephen's death. Duncan forwards the information to Proctor who follows up with the radio station on November the 19th. In the notes in the file, it states that Proctor gets in contact with the radio host and asks if he can remember anyone telling him any information concerning Stephen's case. The host eventually remembers Stephen's case and says, quote, someone called in a day before and asked if there was an arrest in the case and said they were investigating a prominent family or something like that. The host says that he knows it was a white male. I'd be lying if I knew who called. He goes on to say that people call in all the time and talk about arrests and rumors. Proctor asked him about any rumors concerning Stephen's case. The host then says, quote, I don't know if it's true or not. Somebody told me, a good friend of mine's son, the Murdoch kid down in Hampton, 
And that's just a rumor. Street committee. I heard yesterday, like I said, street talk, someone said there are a thousand rumors flying about this. Like I said, it's a prominent family, Hampton County, and I'm sure people don't like them. I mean, they're friends of mine, but I'm sure people don't like them and will take any shot they can at them. The host then inquires if the mate team is investigating the te- the case, to which Proctor responds with, quote, nobody has been arrested at this point, end quote. Or ever. Yeah, this is still, still 20, no. yeah, this is still 2015. So this radio host not only says that he had heard that there was arrest made, but he doesn't even try to say on air that it was rumor and then ponies up that they, he's friends with the Murdoffs. For God's sakes, people. But anyway, on November 24th, 2015, Matt Popovich releases a story in the Hampton County Guardian calling, quote, mother of the slain Hampton County teen states possible hate crime, end quote. In the article, Sandy told the Guardian she heard rumors about an older man stalking Stephen, but she's heard other rumors she believes more. Popovich states in the article, quote, she reiterated several times her opinion that her son was killed for being gay by several local county or local Hampton County youths from prestigious families which she believes have sworn to protect their children no matter what heinous crime they committed, end quote. Sandy would not divulge any names, but said she believed that Stephen would not have been walking on Sandy Run Road in the middle of the night. She didn't buy the hit-and-run theory at all. She said boys, some of whom were Stephen's classmates, were coming home from a baseball game, and, quote, they took him from his car. I hear the same story, but from different people. Everybody knows what happened to my son, but nobody wants to tell me who is responsible, end quote. Fast forward to December the 7th of 2015. Investigator Duncan receives an anonymous tip. Now, this is going to get, if y'all thought all these fucking names was confusing, hold on. This family tree, I don't know if it forks once or twice, but it's not many more than that. All right, so buckle up, buttercup. So Duncan receives this tip, quote, Dontero Aiken along with another black male and white male, the Murdoch are the ones involved in the death. Duncan contacts Roel, who is another investigator, and briefs him on the tip. Duncan then sends an email to three other South Carolina Highway Patrol troopers, quote, about what I wanted Lance Corporal Roel to do. Duncan then sends all of that information to Proctor and advises him of the whole situation. So 11 days later on December the 18th, Proctor receives all this information Daryl Williams, who says his stepson, Patrick Wilson, told him that Sean Connolly struck and killed Stephen Smith. Proctor notes the following in his report. Williams said his stepson told him this in confidence. He said Wilson had moved out and he did not know where he was staying. Williams said he could only tell Proctor that Wilson attended some Christian school in Ridgeland. Proctor drives to Ridgeland and goes to the Step of Faith School, but Wilson does not go there. He then goes to the Legacy U-Haul Baptist Church School. Wilson is a student there, but not at school that day. Williams doesn't return Proctor's calls, seeking more information. Quote, Mr. Williams stated that the reason that he was passing this information on was because Randy Murdoch told him to call Investigator Proctor. Well, there's a fucking red flag right there. Okay, so here's the odd part. Like, none of this is odd, but this is even weirder. So on December 21st, 2015, around 3.25 p.m., 
South Carolina Highway Patrol Investigator Duncan interviews Nick Ginn, or Jen, we're going to go with Jen, of the Hampton Police Department. The interview stems from this tip that I just told you about. And another email that a Sergeant Burns was told about that came from the Hampton County Police Department. Here's one of the first odd things. The number in which Proctor and Duncan State is the one they use to get in touch with Jen is not associated with the Hampton County Police Department. If you call the number that is written in the report, you don't get the Hampton County Police Department. You get a law firm. And no, it's not the Murdoch's, but it is another law firm in Hampton. And the number for the Hampton County Police Department's not even fucking close to the one written in the report. But anyway, so Jen picks up the phone and says, Sergeant Jen, as as he is picking up the phone at his own desk, Duncan says, hey, do you have time to talk about the Hampton County case? Jen says that he's at somebody else's desk and needs to put him on hold to get a piece of paper, quote, in case he needs to take some notes. Jesus. Jen returns after several minutes. Some of our phones have line one, some of them don't, which makes zero sense. I have no idea why that's, I guess he's trying to justify why it took him so long to get back to him. All right, so get your paper out, get you a big old swig of whatever you're drinking and some more string, and let's try to keep up with this. So Investigator Proctor gets information about four days prior that Daryl Williams stated that his stepson, Patrick Wilson, tells him that Sean Conley is the one that's involved. Come to find out, Officer Jen is also Daryl Wilson's stepson. That's where this gets crazy. So you got a you got a man calling the South Carolina Highway Patrol stating that he was told to call by one of the Murdaws and that his stepson is claiming that he knows what's going on. You got a South Carolina Highway Patrol investigator that tries to track down stepson. Then in a separate thing, you get an email from the Hampton County Police Department from a sergeant who also happens to be related to the same man that dropped the dime that the Murdoch's asked to call. There's nothing fishy there. I mean, it's all coincidence, man. There's nothing fishy. Nothing. We don't have any collusion. We're not trying to sway people. Nah, nah, none of that. So we have Daryl Wilson stating that his one stepson who is still in high school tells him that a kid named Sean Connolly is responsible for Stephen Smith's murder. We have Daryl Wilson's other son, who just so happens to be a Hampton County police officer, telling a South Carolina Highway Patrol investigator that Patrick Wilson and Sean Connolly was drunk and hit something. He came back the next day and saw the cops and learned through the media that someone had been killed. He said Sean called Patrick crying, saying that that's what happened. Patrick cried as he told his stepfather the story and walked outside and threw up, Officer Jen said. They, I guess, would be stepfather and Jen himself, wondered if Patrick was with Sean when this supposedly occurred. All right, so Duncan says, did he describe what happened? Jen says, supposedly it was the mirror. I sent Nick the picture of the truck he was driving at that night. I want to say I sent everything to Mitch Altman of the South Carolina Highway Patrol. 
him and my brother and me are good friends, and I don't know who to contact. Mitch said he would get that information to the right person. Daryl tells Jen he is concerned because somebody has lost a son. According to investigator Duncan, the South Carolina Highway Patrol got this tip on December the 9th of 2015. And, quote, we got a couple of people out looking for Patrick, end quote. Duncan asked him whether he had heard about this incident before. Jen says he heard some rumors around town, but, quote, as far as anything that I could say would have any kind of possible validity would be this. I think he's a, quote, good-hearted person, but he's shady. Duncan asked, does Patrick have a criminal record? Jen says, I think he was charged with attempted murder, but I'm not exactly sure what the circumstances behind that was, but I think it was one of those things they charged with a higher charge to work their way down. So, yeah, you heard that correctly. Patrick Wilson was charged with first-degree assault and battery and attempted murder on April 17th of 2015. That's before Stephen passes away. According to the arrest warrants in the case, Wilson got into an argument with a man and fired a shot at the man's car that had two passengers inside. The incident happened on Prince William Road in Brunson, South Carolina. Quote, all victims were afraid for their lives, end quote, the arrest warrant states. Sean Connolly, the person who Wilson claimed hit Stephen with his truck, was in the car with Wilson when the shooting occurred, according to his witness statement. Connolly told police that Patrick Wilson grabbed his gun and shot at the sign after he argued with a man. And there's pictures of a bullet hole in this traffic sign if you so want to go find it. The Hampton County Grand Jury indicted Wilson on attempted murder and assault and battery in August of 2015. While Wilson was out on bond, the family he allegedly shot at filed several harassment complaints about Wilson. Corey Fleming, a close friend of the Murdoch family, represented Patrick Wilson in the case. In 2018, Fleming represented Gloria Satterfield's family in a wrongful death settlement against Alex Murdoch. In 2019, Fleming temporarily represented Connor Cook in the boat crash that killed Mallory Beach. In February of 2018, Wilson's indictment was Noel Prost, which means the 14th Circuit Solicitor Office, just so happens to be where Alex Murdoch worked, decided not to prosecute, and the charges were dropped. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is all the information that I could find concerning Stephen's case. With that last bit of information there, there's something fucked up going on with the fact that you have a Hampton County police sergeant in, I guess, inserting himself into a highway patrol investigation with this tale of a kid that was a hothead that had shot at a sign. But it seems to me, and if you were paying attention, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. If so in April of 2015 is when Patrick is charged with first degree assault. And then it sounds like maybe Patrick was in the car when someone else hit Sean with something or whatever. And as a way to keep Patrick from saying anything, Alex decides that he's going to know Pross the 
attempted murder and harassment and assault and battery charges on this young man so that he can keep his mouth shut about what really happened to Stephen. That's just the way I read it. And that was 2018, in February of 2018. That was the last time anything was put into the investigation file. Now, like Coach said when we started this almost an hour and a half ago, <laughs> Murdahl has been found guilty, and I don't think we'll ever know. Like you had alluded to, he's going to fall on the sword because – what was it? Was it in the HBO documentary that they talked about how Buster was basically going to follow in Alex's footstep and work at the law firm? That was the plan. <clears throat> but then he got dismissed from college, though, right? See, I don't. I didn't. I didn't watch the third installment. I have yet to watch it because I was like, I got to go start writing notes about this. But um, Stephen had made the comment to Sandy that he had a deep-sea fishing trip with a very prominent person in the community, and if it got out who that prominent person was, people would be surprised. Which leads you to believe that either we're talking about the old boy at Hilton Head or we're talking about the Murdoffs. So let's get into our theories and try to wrap a bow around this big old turd tortilla that we've constructed. Well, I'll say is this. The boy was not hit by a car. He was hit by a blunt object one solid time, and it killed him. Whether it was the buster or not, I don't know, but how how many people can hear the same thing? I know it's a small town, but a guy like that could keep a secret, but you know what I'm saying? Like a lot of people knew or suspected that he was involved with Steven and in a family like his, if he wanted, if he was scared, it was going to come out. He would have had the motive to do something about it. Did he? I don't know. I can't say. I don't either. Certainly feels like, certainly feels like he did. And we can, we all get caught up in the whole, well, his dad's a murderer his son, his brother killed somebody. Why wouldn't he kill somebody? But those rumors existed before any of those events took place. You know, it wasn't like all of a sudden uh, uh, Alex kills his wife and son, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, remember Buster? I bet he killed Stephen." No, they were those rumors existed. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I can't say. I don't know. I. I don't want to just buy into it just because. You know what I'm trying to say? No, I agree with you. Now, the one thing I alluded to yesterday was uh, there was a lady that on Facebook, the old Facebook drama around this, and I've not even researched this because I don't really, I don't have the time or the energy, as Rip says, I don't have the energy for you today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she posts... Uh, basically a back and forth between her and Dr. Presnell's maid of honor at her wedding trying, this lady, this other lady tries to defend Dr. Presnell's horrible ass handling and her role in the investigation. And the problem is she is a trained forensic pathologist. 
She was consulted in the case to give her expert opinion, and then she became so arrogant and dismissive when people started trying to say, hey, why did you rule it a hit and run? And she says, because he was found in the road. That makes no damn sense, okay? So, anyway. Now, the thing that I wanted to talk about was she had the opportunity to travel to the crime scene and chose not to. That's ridiculous. That is insane. Yeah. Yeah. So then this whole bullshit falls apart with this lady and the maid of honor on Facebook. And this, I'm not going to say it. It rhymes with the wicked witch of the West. This woman says it is her, quote, unbiased opinion that Susan Presnell is a, sta- is a saint and Stephen Smith and his family should feel honored to have Dr. Presnell personally looking into his death. Mm. Mm. You talk about my blood pressure just rising about 20 points. It is. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So anyway, th- this whole thing goes back and forth about how um, she's trying to say that Presnell scored in the top 10% of the MCAT and her medical boards and such a scholastic achievement and training makes her um, more than capable of making this uh, conclusion, which is all of that might be all that might be true, but that doesn't mean she's not corrupt as shit. Doesn't mean she didn't cover something up. Right. The BFF says she takes her job very seriously and she's immune to politics. Bullshit. She's tied directly to the Murdoch's because they ran in the same circle. So it's not about whether or not she was trained or she was extremely smart. She was a damn idiot. And she decided to play politics when she shouldn't have. And she should have just went with the evidence. Now, we're going to get into, I guess I'll say mine, but I, I, I agree with you. The Stephen was not, I don't think he was shot. I mean, you would have, you would think if he was shot, there would be a huge exit wound. But anyway, I think like you, he was struck with something. One of the things that I had seen previously was that they had kind of, they saw him walking or they had gone by, saw his car was there and he was out of gas and offered to give him a ride. And I guess him knowing Buster, and then it was kind of alluded to that it might be Paul, but I think it's more Buster since he knew Buster and a couple of other guys, he got in the truck and then they pulled over somewhere else and uh, that's when he may have been struck and then they put him in the back of the truck, go down that other Sandy Run Road and toss him out. Yeah, it could have been possibly been, you know, an unplanned event. If Let's just say, I'm not saying he did, but let's say Buster's guilty. Let's say Buster came upon him gave him a ride, and during that ride, Stephen may have slipped up and said something. That's what that I'm thinking. Allowed his Buster's friends, you know. Yep, that is exactly what I'm thinking happened. Clued them in. Yeah, clued them in on like, oh, shit, man, Buster's 
Buster's gay. And Buster got angry and things went downhill, you know. And that's, I think that's what Duncan was trying to get to when he was talking to that Kevin fellow was, look, it's one thing to have a fit of rage. It's another thing to have a fit of rage and then use your name and your daddy's name and power and money to cover that shit up. So, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think that is very plausible if, like you said, if Buster is guilty at, in this, or if he is even culpable in this, I see that as a very good avenue to pursue. Now, in the Netflix documentary, to if you've not watched these, that's what we both watch. But in one of them, Alex and Buster are so flippant and they think they're above the law. They're just talking about shit on the jailhouse telephone. And that shit's recorded. Yeah. yeah. And they catch Buster in Vegas gam- trying to gamble away a bunch of his daddy's money just in case he had to pay something. But they didn't his dad like embezzle some crazy ass amount of money, like thirty million. Yeah, four million from the housekeeper's kids. Yeah, they never saw a dime. No, not a dime. There's so much bullshit in this whole thing, man, and we'll never know the truth. But uh, recommendations, I'm going to recommend the Murdahl Murders podcast. Her, She used to work for Fitness News. Now she's pissed at them because of something. I don't know. I don't really care. She does have a, a pretty good um, podcast. She actually has the audio interviews with a lot of the people that we referenced in our podcast. And so... Yeah, they are a little difficult to hear here because, you know, police interviews are kind of like surveillance videos. We we can listen in via satellite to some Chinese spy house, but we can't get the police department a decent set of fucking recorders. But this lady's name is Mandy Matney. She's an investigative journalist, and she's originally from... Kansas. She's worked in papers in Missouri, Illinois, and South Carolina, and she had worked with FitzNews.com for a four-part expose on this. Since she started her Murder All Murders podcast, the owner of Fitz News and her have had a falling out. So there are two episodes. I think one of them's 30 minutes, the other one's 50 minutes concerning Stephen's case. But if you want to you want to jump down the rabbit hole on this whole Murdoch thing? That Murdoch Murders podcast is where to find it. I just don't have the energy right now to do it. My brain hurts. So that's my recommendation. Coach, I kind of shot yours out the window last week, but what were your... Oh, the Netflix one is uh, Murdoch Murders, an American Scandal, and then the, the HBO one is uh, Low Country, the Murdoch Dynasty. And it sounds like in the HBO when the investigators are German. Yes, yes. And then supposedly well, they're foreign. Yeah, well, yeah, they ain't Amer- They ain't from around the Low Country. I'll tell you that. They talk a little funny. No, yeah, they ain't from South Carolina. I can assure you. Uh, supposedly, there's another one on CNN, but I don't know how long that is. I ain't seen that one. I don't subscribe to. I don't have cable anymore. You don't I have just the- have. I'm sure have, uh, you can find it on. I just the, have apps, man. I'm sure you can find it on the YouTube. Probably. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm exhausted from this whole thing. Me too. I barely spoke. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine how you feel. So, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we're going to put a poll on the Spotify episode for some reason. If you listen to them on Apple, the poll's not on there, so you actually have to go to Spotify, and the poll will be on there. I'm going to leave the poll open for a couple of weeks to see uh, what you guys think about this case, and we will also do another poll about whether or not you would like for us to to maybe delve into some other avenues of the low country. But I can tell you this. We got a lot of core fans that don't give a shit what kind of content we put out, which I love them. I do. That's great. (laughs) I do. I love them to death, man. I cannot. And our patrons, they're great. They have great things to say. Um, However, (laughs) when you look at our episode list on Spotify, if it doesn't have to do with a missing person or a murder, I mean, it's night and day difference. Yeah. Like the Giants and Andrew Dawson and our Congo, they've all, they've averaged about 500 plays since releasing them. Uh, Mr. Stephen Smith's first part, as we are recording this the day after we released it, already has almost 300 listens. In fourteen hours, less than twenty. Yeah, fourteen hours. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty pretty good. Yeah, but if you go back and you look at our episode list, the Dardine family murders, seven hundred downloads, seven hundred listens. Kelly Nash, Lake Lanier, seven hundred. Caitlin Ledbetter, seven hundred. Medical mysteries, fucking four eighty. <laughs> <laughs> Bill and Dorothy Wacker, eight fifty. Billy Jean, the basement cut, seven fifty. So we get it. We got it. We got it. But we can't I can't talk about murder and death and mystery or like disappearances without going batshit crazy. So we gotta throw some stuff in there like the Mexican Giants and the Congo crazies. So anyway, I do appreciate everyone tun- tuning in. We got some great feedback, some great personal messages about how uh basically to sum it up from a guy that used to to run us beer, fuck them. Your fans will stay there. Take care of yourself. So thank y'all for understanding this little rough patch. We've kind of gone through with, uh, releasing episodes late and in the time frame. but we, we got us playing, man. We got us playing. We're going to stick to it. We should be back on track. That's right, man. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. We might, uh, depending on when Coach's spring break is, if it re- lines up with mine, we might take this show on the road and do it from Five Witch Brewery across from the – just so Coach can see there is a brewery like 30 yards in front of an elementary school. <laughs> oh, don't you tempt me now. I know. You had I, me at brewery. Dude, if, if I had 25 years in in the state of Georgia, I would freeze it. And I, me and my wife would move to Chattanooga just so I could attempt to get a job there. I don't care if I was the janitor there. <laughs> but anyway, if y'all, any of our listeners happen to come through the great city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, go downtown, smack downtown, Five Wits Brewing Company, 
Community Pie Pizza. Those are some great little joints down there. You will not be disappointed. Coach, you got anything else? Oh, man, you know I don't. Deuces.